When it comes to films and television, the Tudors are a perennially fascinating subject, and Elizabeth I has been depicted on screen more than most. Here are just some of the names that have played her. Sarah Bernhardt, Flora Robson, Betty Davis, Glenda Jackson, Miranda Richardson, Kate Blanchett, Judy Dench, Helen Mirren, and I'm sure I've missed some. But as far as I can recall, only once before has someone set out to show Elizabeth as a young girl, and that was Jean Simmons in 1953 in a film called Young Bess. It is this early part of Elizabeth's life, the years after Henry VIII died in January 1547, that is the subject of a new series on stars called Becoming Elizabeth, with Alicia von Rittberg in the title role. It was a time of intense change, instability and conflict, and the series poses new questions on the nature of queenship, familial legacy, the role of women, power and consent. The series also features Romola Gary as the Princess Mary and Tom Cullen as Thomas Seymour, whom you can hear in this clip. Catherine, I once too thought wise and good and a friend. But then look how she mocks our father's memory with that man. I feel sick at what I hear about them both, what, what I have seen. You are to leave. The king does so love his nuanced religious commentary. May I escort you back? I'm in no need of an escort. Are we angry, Mary, about my marriage? Sir, I have no opinion on who or what you marry. You are of no consequence to me. It's who my father's widow marries that I have an opinion upon. But these two things have converged upon me. Daughter. I had a father, and he is gone. Indeed. Except for the one father we all share and will one day meet. For your safety, your sanity, come to me. My guests today are Anya Rees, creator, writer and producer of Becoming Elizabeth, and George Ormond, executive producer of the series. Anya started her career as a playwright at the Royal Court Theatre in 2010, when her debut play, Spur of the Moment, heralded, according to Simon Stevens, the arrival of a startling new voice. Since then, Rhys has continued her own writing, adapted Wedekind's Spring Awakening, and translated three vital and startlingly realised adaptations of Chekhov. She's written for television as a series writer for EastEnders and Ackley Bridge, and her adaptation of Chekhov's The Seagull is currently being revived in the West End. Her career coincided with that of the BAFTA and Royal Television Society award-winning producer George Ormond. Ormond also worked on Ackley Bridge as an executive producer. He's also been an exec on the TV series The Accident, Kiri, National Treasure and Great Expectations, as well as a producer on Emma, Silent Witness and EastEnders. It is a treat to talk to them about the making of this show. Anya and George, thank you so much for making the time to talk to me about this 
wonderful new series. For those who haven't seen the show yet, can you describe for me our main players and their relationships? The show starts with the death of Henry VIII. And at the heart of our story are Elizabeth, her older sister Mary, and her younger brother Edward, who is thrust onto the throne age nine. And for people who know the history, they'll know that Henry's death leaves a massive power vacuum. There's a scramble for power from the great families in England over who will control the king and who will control the power of the throne. So at the heart of that, we've got Edward's uncle, the Duke of Somerset, and Edward's other uncle, Thomas Seymour. We've got Catherine Parr, Henry's surviving widow. And I guess those are the real central characters. And alongside them, we've also got Henry Gray and the Gray family and Jane. But at the beginning of the story, it's really the Seymour brothers, Catherine Parr, Elizabeth, Mary and Edward, who are at the heart of it. And I'm sure you're asked this a lot, but at the risk of being predictable. And yeah, what attracted you to telling this particular story of Elizabeth as a young woman? I think because I had no idea that it existed. I wasn't into this time period, but I thought I had the broad sweeps of it. And I went, oh, yeah, there's a sick little boy. And then there's the sister that murders everyone is the bad one. And then there's the Spanish Armada. And I thought it was all over very quickly. I didn't think there was much depth or exploration to go into around that time. And then George told me the story and I realised how much more complicated it was and how much longer it was as well. Because I think I just assumed that was like a few years because no media seems to have really focused on it in the way that we have. And how did you go about grounding Elizabeth in that kind of reality of being a teenage girl in the early modern period, whilst also allowing an audience to recognise glimpse of the monarch to come. In other words, I suppose, <laughs> how did you develop that character arc? With difficulty. That has been the real balancing act. And I suppose, actually, hopefully a lot of the heavy lifting comes from our title, that it's becoming Elizabeth, because I think some people might watch those early episodes and go, that's not Elizabeth. And it's, of course it's not. She's not there yet. No 14-year-old is a real reflection of who you are as an adult. You change a lot through that and also through this very formative experience that we explore with Thomas Seymour, but also the death of your parents. I think there's such a shift when the adults stop being in charge and it's your generation. And I think that was something I was really interested to explore because I think it's something that I've only just started to go, my friends are in charge of stuff now. We're parents. We're like the real people in charge. And I think Elizabeth had that at a really young age. If it's suddenly like my little brother, it's my sister. We're the ones that got kept down and everyone made decisions for us. Suddenly we have our lives in our own hands. I think one of the things that you talked about, Anya, right at the beginning because we talked so much about Elizabeth as a young woman, a teenage girl, who's obviously caught up in this very complex relationship. And there's a complicated power structure there. And you talked about her from the very beginning as a sort of a teenager who feels she's an adult and is equipped to operate in an adult world, but hasn't realized yet that she's not completely equipped to operate in an adult world and is equipped with real intelligence and at the heart of that story, following a young woman trying to navigate those things. I thought you excavated that and found the character at the heart of it really brilliantly. And although it's called Becoming Elizabeth, it feels like it's a becoming story with lots of other characters as well. I mean, again, I guess that's just called character development, but in ways in which they were developed, I felt that was original. I mean, Edward, for example, was strikingly characterised as a chip off the old block. And that's not a version I've seen of him before. If we see him at all, which is rare on film, it's that he's sickly. Was that a definite choice? Yeah, we always conceive the show as an ensemble show. This isn't just a character study. The world made her this. And so you have to explore the world and the people around it. And it's, I want to say a really pretentious way of saying it, but it's the world that forged her. 
And that's just really important to show more so than spending a lot of time with her on her own. Or It feels like sometimes we have a very narrow view and sometimes it's a curse of a lot of history shows that you go, this is the person we're following because we have to find someone to root for because it's such a strange world. And then you neglect everyone around them and actually you come up with a really flat and not very accurate portrayal of the world that they were in because you've so tried to force every decision to have been made by that person or manufacture situations that will illustrate who they were later or something like that, rather than just spending time with, if your uncle was that kind of man, what does that make you? What's your experience then mean? And it be this interweaving web of people and different stories, and it's navigating your way through that. Our producer always says that she's not the weather maker. She's the person having to observe the weather. And I think that you have to spend a lot of time with seeing that world. I also think there's something on Edward, for example, it's a bit of a gift in doing a show about a period of history that not everybody knows about and that hasn't been done a hundred times on screen before. You can come at things in a fresh way. But also there's a real joy in doing the research and getting those sort of little glimpses of what's been reported in the sources of the history books. And then Anya piecing it together from a very human point of view. And I remember reading episode one and you saying he's a kid who there's a moment in episode one where he has to address the Privy Council and he looks absolutely terrified. And that's the thing that I think makes Edward really original is he's a boy who doesn't know how to be a king. He's got a massive father figure to live up to. He's trying to behave the way he thinks he's expected, but is also has been brought up with these really unbending, unshakable beliefs. And I think your interest, Anya, in the emotional side of that is the thing that kind of makes it really original because he's a character, he's a human being first and foremost more than a historical figure. Well, I'd like to pick up on that. This is a question I ask every sort of creator of a historical fictional world I speak to, every historical novelist. You're obviously creating a fiction, but you're doing so from the worlds of real people who actually lived. So I wonder whether you feel a kind of sense of moral responsibility when you're telling the stories of historical people, or whether you think, well, no, you know, all historical drama is a fiction and we can do what we feel works. I didn't want to villainise anyone. And I think that was my version of taking moral responsibility is to always explore their humanity and not try and go like, they did this one bad thing and that must mean they're a monster. So let's play them like a pantomime villain because that feels morally compromising to me. I tried to read enough about a character and read enough of their speeches or letters or anything where I could hear their real voice. Always trying to look for personal events that contradict themselves kind of things to try and understand who the person was. And as soon as that person got locked in my head and I went, oh, I know that kind of person, then I felt a bit of freedom to use them as I would any character that I'd invented or just use the real history to find who that person was. And then I don't think I could write a scene if I kept on going, yeah, but would she really do that? I had to let them walk off and be mine to then play with because otherwise I don't know how you do it. But yeah, I felt a responsibility to try and get hold of the truth of the person in the first place. And then I suppose I let go of a bit of the sense of, well, I must represent exactly who they would have been at every one moment. There are choices you have to make, aren't there? I think we worked really hard actually to mine the history because the history is so fruitful and it's so interesting and it's so operatic. And it's so surprising and human what people do. that They make very human mistakes. They make very human choices. So we'd be nuts not to engage in that. And at the same time, you have to create a dramatic structure. And also one thing you can't do that history books can do. History books can say, this might have happened, but we're not sure. In a drama, you make a choice. And particularly if you're following a character, you have to make a decision. 
And that decision has to underpin your dramatic truth. And I think that's the key difference. But the history was so fruitful that we never felt we needed to deviate massively. But you're right that it's not an historical reconstruction, is it? Point absolutely taken. So in terms of thinking about the women on screen, then, I mean, there's so many things that are done very interestingly. You focus a lot of attention on the nature of women as property, for example, or valuable prizes in marriage, sexual objects. Catherine Parr comments on it. Elizabeth comments on it. You're addressing this lack of power that they have, and yet you also want to try and position them, I suppose, in this patriarchal world and give them some sense of agency. How did you handle this question of how do you talk about women and power? That was one of the biggest struggles, I suppose, is trying to give them autonomy and let them make their own decisions while not falsely portraying their position in the world. Catherine is one of the interesting things because some of the reaction to Catherine is, oh, she's quite manipulative. I've really struggled with that because I'm like, no, she's just aware of how few cards she has to play and she expresses that. And I don't think that means it's manipulative to go, hey, the only card I've got going is Elizabeth right now. doesn't mean she doesn't love her. We tried to give the women a huge awareness of their place in the world and the few levers they had to pull and not pretend, oh, if you were super smart, you'd be okay. Because that's not true. I think... Yeah, it's strange. There is sometimes a perception that then that makes the women manipulative because they are aware that they don't have power and go, oh, they're really power hungry. But I think power is the only means to survive in that world. And it is safety because it's only if you're a big enough fish that no one can eat you that you're safe. There's one other thing that I think is really relevant to that, Anya, which is that we realised very early on that the history books give you the information on the characters that are prominent when they're prominent. And the sources at the time, they're obviously, some are more reliable than others, some have their own agenda. And some people have massive blank chapters where we don't really know what they were doing. We don't know very much about what Jane Grey was doing in this period, but we do know where she ended up. We do know that she was at Chelsea with Elizabeth. So that was a lot of fun, imagining what that relationship might be. And you either dramatically speculate or you can't follow those characters. On Gone Medieval, History Hits Medieval Podcast, we're here to spoil you with the big topics. Possibly one of the most important Anglo-Saxon discoveries since Sutton Hoo and the Staffordshire Horde. And discover people you might never have heard of. Philip Augustus, genuinely, he was a genius. We explore cutting-edge research. I want to focus on the archaeology. It's a whole body of information and knowledge in its own right. And the big questions. There is discussion about whether women wore knickers. From everyday life to dynasty-shattering events. The key to conquest was cavalry and the short, extremely powerful bow the Mongols had. I'm Dr Kat Jarman. And I'm Matt Lewis. Every Tuesday and Saturday, we'll explore some of the biggest stories, the greatest mysteries and latest research. We'll travel the medieval world in search of the stories you haven't heard and get under the skin of the ones you do know. Subscribe to Gone Medieval from History Hit wherever you get your podcasts. Hold up. 
This is After Dark, Myths, Misdeeds and the Paranormal. The podcast that takes you to the shadiest corners of the past, unpicking history's spookiest, strangest and most sinister stories. I'm Maddie Pelling. And I'm Anthony Delaney. Join us every Monday and Thursday and we'll take a look at the darker side of history, from haunted pubs to Houdini to witch trials and arsenic-laced breakfasts. Follow After Dark, Myths, Misdeeds and the Paranormal wherever you get your podcasts. Brought to you by History Hit. It was great to see so much screen time and development given to Catherine Parr. She is so often neglected on film. Why did you put her so centre stage, I suppose? I think I was really fascinated by such a clever woman marrying Thomas Seymour. (laughs) Well, I think you explained that a little bit with your casting. I found it really interesting that everyone around her had operated on such a base level of kind of Henry wanted to sleep with her. Like, people wanted to kill her and burn her. It's just that then she fell victim to it too. And just that thing of a bad man brings you down. And I think, I don't know, when reading the history, and it might just be my over-romanticised interpretation, but I was reading it going, God, if you'd been alive, everything would have been fine. None of this terrible stuff would have happened. I think I'm just really interested in the thing in all histories. People don't know they're in the history books. People don't know what's coming. And I think there's something really interesting about Catherine was such a player. She did look like she was going to be hugely formative and be part of that New England where Edward went and would have been so formative on who Elizabeth was. And then she's just gone. So I think that was just giving that real time of going like, oh, so that's part of the coming of Elizabeth is... Her life kept on looking like, this is the direction it's going in. This is what the world's going to be. And then suddenly there'd be a big U-turn or something just to throw off her path. And that felt a really recurrent thing that happened to her. It's just her world shifted again and again. So it makes sense, this slightly selfish, tunnel-visioned world that she ended up having politically and everything else, of just going, this is the way I want the world to be because the world can change any minute. And everything gets flipped on its head and I'm not in control of my own destiny that I felt like it was interesting to, for instance, with Catherine, just explore that, here's my mother, I'm safe here. No, you're not, everything's changing. Just that constant shift. Yeah, I mean, I completely agree. I mean, I want to say that some of the writing here, much of the writing here, is absolutely superb. I mean, that scene when Thomas Seymour comes across Elizabeth sitting in the council chamber early on, one of those instances, I mean, just brilliant. But if we were to talk a bit about that relationship and Catherine's part in it, In many ways, your series follows the primary source evidence, the testimony that we have from Elizabeth's companion, Kat Ashley, the early morning visits that she mentions, the instant when Catherine holds Elizabeth, although it's never been clear to me whether she was holding her because she was joining in the game or she was holding her to protect her or holding her down. And you've just said you have to choose a line with drama, but actually your scene whole range of emotions there. It almost accommodates all those readings. And then the fact that Elizabeth left Catherine and Thomas's house abruptly. But in the end, I suppose we have to figure out whether we think it's grooming or abuse or consensual romance. I know we took a very certain stance on it. It feels like we didn't just walk into the history and go, hey, what if he wanted to sleep with her? It feels like there's a reason that we were trying to tell that story. And there's a reason I think it fits into her later narrative. But also I think we are making history drama, but we are also making a drama. And it's, to me, a really interesting relevant thing about growing up and what you do when you realize that your first relationship was very abusive and toxic and how you try and reform yourself after that and I think it's a really interesting context to put it in this very patriarchal world where you actually have power 
of your status, but you have no power because you're a woman and a child. It was just such an interesting dynamic to be the more powerful one between you and your abuser, but have no power actually to knack that or keep yourself safe within it, even mm. though you're being used for that reason. And I know there is some bits of evidence that she tried to shut it down a bit more and that there's that let him not touch me thing on the letter and stuff like that. But I think there is a world where that could sit in the narrative that we've made. And I also think, I don't know really what good it does in the world, putting out a show which just shows a 14-year-old terrified of a man touching her up for four episodes. Also, with Catherine, I think you really get it in episode one, the feeling that her relationship relationship with Thomas, although with hindsight, it's a terrible mistake. It feels like it's her first positive romantic experience. It's her first experience of kind of real love. And now I get to do it for real. And then it sours so quickly what that means in terms of her navigating that and also her perception of what might be going on with Elizabeth. And yeah, we knew about the dress cutting. Catherine held Elizabeth while Thomas cut her dress to shreds with his sword. And it was a real talking point for us. What's going through Catherine's head about what she thinks is going on? It's a hard story. It's just fascinating, isn't it? I actually thought it was very interesting reading of it. And I felt that it does give us in some ways, possibly Elizabeth's perspective. We see it from her perspective early on. But obviously you've chosen a 28-year-old actor to play 13, 14-year-old girl. And that makes a difference in some ways because the two look like a plausible couple. How would it have changed if the girl had actually <laughs> been 14? One of the things that we talked about was that I felt that Anya's take on how to approach this story was exciting because the nature of grooming is if you're the person being groomed, by definition, you don't feel initially that you're being abused. You might be confused. You might have questions about it. But actually, this is a teenager who, in our story at least, does feel attraction to Thomas and is confused and doesn't know what to do with that. And yet Thomas is very clearly abusing his power. And as the story evolves, her point of view shifts. And I think the audience's point of view should also evolve and shift. And Thomas is ultimately exposed as a weak and manipulative and vain. I think if we had cast a 13-year-old, I'm not sure you'd have been able to access that point of view because you would have felt very much that it's a very clear-cut abuse story as opposed to a complex dynamic from Elizabeth's point of view. I think also, this might sound like a really stupid point, not all 14-year-olds look 14. And I think the idea that you have to go, I see that it's physically repulsive and that's the only reason I could imagine that this is not okay. It's like... Dynamics is so much more complex than that. It's something you actually see reflected out in the media sometimes, of it just being like, there's a big difference between the way a 17-year-old who looks 17 is talked about to a 17-year-old who doesn't look 17. I don't think the idea of, oh, we would have known it was abuse if we felt physically sick as we watched it. It's like, we, have, we should have some adult responsibility to go, no, she's 14, it's not OK. I think that's right, and I think you're absolutely right. Someone doesn't have to look vulnerable to be vulnerable. But also, I think the reactions tell us, as ever, so much about our own age, because actually it tells us that these ideas about a woman saying no and really meaning yes are only really dying now. There are generations in which that has been accepted. You mentioned that you think this might have been formative. I mean, some historians suggest that this relationship might have been the reason Elizabeth never married. Having gone through the process of writing this, do you have a view on this? If you believe that Robert Dudley thing he said about, oh, I've always known she didn't want to get married. She had good reason to not want to get married before that. She would have seen 
marriage just not be a very positive thing. But yeah, I can't imagine that your first kind of romantic entanglement, in whatever shape it came in, knowing that you were abused and not quite protected by the other woman in the relationship. And just to see that he was trying to cheat on his wife might have helped. And known that vulnerability, I think that it not contributed to that sense of distrust of herself and men and what are they trying to get out of it? And is it for real and is it not for real? I don't know if it's the reason, but it can't not be a reason. George, I mentioned that the casting was very good. I mean, it's hard to even single out people because they're all so strong. And the locations are very good. I love the use of Broughton Castle, for example. And the lighting was spectacular. What was your ethos when it came to evoking the world of the past? Anya and I and Justin Chadwick, our lead director, and Lisa Osborne, our producer, talked a lot as a team and with our heads of department about the fact that we feel as a TV audience, very familiar with the world of the Tudors. Most of us have seen Wolf Hall, the Tudors, Kate Blanchett, play Elizabeth, and various other examples. And I guess we were really keen just to try and bring this world to life in a way that brought the audience to it with completely fresh eyes, as if they were experiencing it for the first time. Sidestepping some of the tropes and cliches about the period and bringing the characters to life as people, for instance, I remember being in a costume meeting with Justin and Bart Karras, who designed the costumes, and Justin was very focused on how to get the costumes to capture the feel of the world so that you could feel the texture, so that you could understand that when you go into court, your costumes are like a suit of armor, that it's kind of what you wear at home and that being different, but also to allow movement so people could move as people rather than feeling like they're in a period show. And we wanted it to feel, I guess, the light, the quality of the light was really important. And the world is lit through the windows with very natural light and backed up with flame, candles and fires and that kind of thing. And that actually creates a really interesting look, but it also influences how you stage things. Because if you're in a big hall and the light source is the window, you want to have a conversation, you go and stand by the window. Or if you want to write a letter, you sit by the window. So it drives you towards something that is naturalistic in one sense, in that it influences how you approach the world, but also that the look is actually quite heightened because it gives it a very sort of bold look. So I think that we wanted it to feel new and fresh to the audience, and we wanted it to feel very alive. So we were capturing things in the moment to go back to that thing that Annie was saying about these are not people who know that they're in history. They're people who are just living moment to moment. So the camera captures things moment to moment. We wanted the costumes to feel like you could absolutely feel the texture of them. And I guess we wanted it to feel like an unpredictable, dangerous world. So there is darkness in it. It could skew off in an unpredictable direction at any point. And yet, strangely, it is beautiful all the same. I mean, I love the historical details, like the people sleeping in the hall or the servants being ignored while conversations go on. And I also think that it's really interesting what you've just said about what you learned, essentially, by embodying history. You learned that someone's going to go and sit in the window. And you also learned, I suppose, that a lot of the time people's faces are cast into shadow because there isn't the light there. And, you know, they don't have infill lighting like we do all the time, you know. And also on casting and sort of the choice of characters, obviously striking is the wonderful measured portrayal of Mary Tudor, played fantastically by Romola Gary. How important to you was it to kind of move away, Anya, from that image of Bloody Mary and ground her like Elizabeth as a woman trying to find her place? It wasn't actually an active thing I went in with, because like I said, I didn't know much about the history. And then I started reading the history and I went, when did she start being crazy? Because <laughs> everything she's done 
make sense so far. And then I just started to see the bigger picture of what had happened to her, just from reading the history, because I was going like, everything she's doing makes sense. When's she mad? Like, what's the terrible... I get what the terrible thing she did later. But it was weird to read something going, oh, you haven't done anything wrong. So then I wanted to convey what I felt from reading about her. And I think, like I said, the ambition definitely when we went in was to show no one is a villain. Thomas is probably the closest we get to a villain, but also I hope we do find some humanity in him. It might not be a humanity which is very likeable, but that doesn't really matter. The other thing that we don't often see that we did get in this is that relationship between the sisters. It's definitely handled. Why did you decide to dedicate time and space to that relationship? I think it's because it's Romola Gary playing it. (laughs) (laughs) We've got her, we're going to use her. Yeah, I think it's such an interesting relationship because especially, look, this is kind of looking forward, but it seemed to be a relationship where they did really, well, at least from Mary's point of view, my take was always they really wanted to love each other. It's just really hard to. And that they were cast in just totally different moulds from each other. And there's something Mary just could fundamentally not trust about this person who, in her mind, hid behind a mask. But Elizabeth thinks she's keeping herself safe and it's like, why are you playing it all out front and expecting me to make decisions? And I don't think in an annoying, oh, she couldn't let the past go. I think in a very real way, Mary couldn't let the past go because, like, it's a past she actively remembers the entire world shifting for this baby. I always found that really interesting, just the difference of the age, I suppose, that Elizabeth is someone growing up going, like, why am I getting cast for the sins of my mother? But everyone else remembers her mother. That's an active thing that happened to Mary. Elizabeth feels like she's had the sins of her mother cast on her, but Mary's unfairly won't let this world go. But to actually be the person who's, I remember this happening to me, and everyone's telling me to let it go, but I can't help it. You're there, you're standing there, and I know my mother would hate the fact that you're standing there. And I'm having to embrace you into my life. It so connects me to the actual struggle rather than just making it, oh, the mean older sister hated her little sister because she was really pretty. It feels like that. I just suddenly saw so much depth behind that relationship that I really wanted to explore it. And you've got a particular moment there, haven't you? You have on screen four women who have been or will be Queen of England with Catherine, Mary, Elizabeth, I count Jane, at a moment where they're each uncertain of their future. So I suppose, do you have a particular interest in portraying this instability? Yeah, I suppose it is like George says, they're in history and they don't know they're in history. There's a really easy thing to do. It's the job of a story, isn't it? It's to find a narrative out of a mess. But actually, I think our job as dramatists was to messy it back up and go, there is no clear narrative of what was leading them through. Of course, this decision was coming. It's really messy and it is bizarre that those three women ended up anywhere near, the, not anywhere near, but like... History should never have seen any of those four women sit on the throne. It should have just been Edward, and Henry should have been married to Catherine of Aragon to the end of time. But I think you do write Mary with real humanity, but also where we start the story, you can't help but fail for somebody whose kid brother is saying, you've got to do what I tell you because I'm right and you're wrong, Who, when actually she's kind, she's reasonable, she's intelligent, and then you write her with real humanity, and then Romola brought loads of humanity to the part as well. Yeah, it's lovely, that combination of sort of dramatic irony that you've got, but the sense of contingency of life actually lived. So powerful. And I was really struck when you were saying earlier about Catherine Parr. You've got your sort of Game of Thrones moment there. One of your key characters sort of disappears, but you're, I mean that in the nicest possible way, but you never could have thought of that. And actually, one thing I did want to say about that was how wonderful it was to have on screen that question about how 
scary childbirth would have been and also how devastating it could have been to the men around as well. The fear for women, the fear also or the implications for men. It was very, very moving to see that portrayed. Oh, I'm really glad. It was really important to me, that bit. I suppose it's one of the things we talk about trying to sidestep the tropes. One of the tropes that does annoy me from period dramas is that, one, men always seem to be absolutely mind-blown that a baby girl could be born. And I'm like, they weren't stupid. Like, they knew there was a 50-50 chance. I get the idea of God wanted it and stuff like that, but the way they're just like, oh, my God, a girl, who could have predicted? All the women died and then it was like all the babies died and it just felt like, I suppose, one of my misconceptions of the time was this thing that people callous about it and it was, you must have gone into it knowing that this could happen. And then I getting into that mindset, I went, oh, my God, you couldn't prevent getting married. You couldn't prevent getting pregnant. And then suddenly you were on a road where you could just be told, yep, might be about to die now or a baby might be about to die. Good luck with that. I know how scary I found it when I found out I was pregnant. I had a real little breakdown right in that scene going, this is awful. And I had a real actually sense of kinship with these women of like how terrifying it was. Okay, and finally... I think that historical fiction, costume drama, films, they say much, if not more, about the time in which they're made <laughs> as the eras they depict. What do you think about this story makes it an important one for today? The thing that hooked us both right at the very beginning was the Thomas and Elizabeth story, I think. It's a very contemporary story, and I think a story of consent or lack of it, sexual power, seeing that in a new way felt like a really exciting way in. There's loads of other stuff about this story that feels contemporary and human and resonant. I think there's definitely that, but I think, sorry, I know I've tried to make this point about six times, but it's just that thing of history isn't made by smart people making important yeah. decisions that everyone knew was going to happen because that was very clear what was going to happen. It's made by people always in a crisis, always running around, always like spurred by their own personal motivations and their own domestic story and their own emotions and their own character flaws. And I think the world's a bit of a mess right now. The world was a bit of a mess then and not seeing as we've all been in charge of our history up to this point and there's been very important decisions made and now chaos reigns. It's like kind of understanding where we are because this is how it always is. And actually there aren't the grown-ups that are about to step into place and make the important decisions and that the past was correct and now is wrong. I think it does help a better lens on the world. Never a true word said. Well, thank you very much indeed for indulging me in asking all the questions that everyone watching it are going to be teeming with questions to ask you and you've been so generous in spending time answering some of mine. But those who haven't watched it clearly are going to now get themselves a Stars subscription and watch it. And if you're not persuaded sufficiently by this, then listen to the panel of experts who I've got telling you their thoughts on it later on this week because they loved it too. Thank you. If you enjoyed this conversation or are intrigued to know more, do listen to the next podcast this week which is the first of a new feature called Not Just the Tudors, Lates. In this first, I'm joined by a team of top historians who, over wine one evening, that's the late bit, tell me what they made of this series. History is full of extraordinary people, the Tudors being just a handful. In my latest film on History Hit, we meet Bess of Hardwick and go inside the incredible house that she built, a house that defines the elegance and grandeur of the Elizabethan age. 
a house fit for a woman who climbed to the top of the Tudor social ladder. To find out more about the life of Bess and many more fascinating figures from the past, sign up via the link in the description with the code TUDORS for an exclusive discount.